Welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. There's this uh, rule in storytelling that you tell your tale in threes. A good joke usually has three parts. A priest, a pastor, and a rabbi walk into a bar. A haiku has three lines. A play usually has three acts. A sonata has three movements. There's even a three-act formula for how to write a good screenplay. And let me explain that. The first act of a screenplay is called the setup, where the initial plot and the main characters are introduced. The second act, which starts about 30 minutes in, is called the confrontation, where the protagonist is faced with a series of increasing obstacles and challenges. Finally, in the third act, called the resolution, The final challenge or confrontation provides a climax and a resolution to the story. All good movies, and I would say all good stories, follow this general three-part rule. Act 1. Lloyd Christmas is a limo driver who's a few beers short of a six-pack. His best friend Harry Dunn runs a mobile pet grooming service called Mutt Cuts. One day Lloyd is assigned to pick up a wealthy customer for a ride to the airport, One look at Mary Swanson, and he is hopelessly in love. She is, in his eyes, the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. Act 2. Little does Lloyd know that Mary is the victim of an elaborate kidnapping and extortion plot, and that the trip to the airport was supposed to be the payoff to release her kidnapped husband. Lloyd grabs the briefcase that sets off a chain of events that sees him and Harry going to Aspen, Colorado, hell-bent on delivering the briefcase to Mary. Along the way, they meet nearly every seedy and shady character involved in the conspiracy. Now, Lloyd doesn't know that the briefcase he's carrying contains $5 million. There is a kidnapper, the FBI, a couple of tacky tuxedos, an unfortunate bathroom incident, and a bait-and-switch. And along the way, the friendship between Lloyd and Harry is tested in every turn. Act 3. During the final confrontation, Mary is reunited with her husband, who has been freed from his ordeal. Lloyd and Harry are empty-handed and broken-hearted, but they still have each other, and they realize that their friendship is the most important thing. The end. Three acts, one good story. Well, the grand story that God is writing in the universe follows this rule also. Every action of God is a part of this story. The creation, the fall, the promise, the incarnation, Jesus' baptism, the desert, and especially the events of Holy Week, the triumphant entry, the table, the garden, the trial, the crucifixion, and finally, the empty tomb. Each of these acts are all part of a three-part meta-narrative. These are each little scenes in the three-part act of God's grand story. So, if you think about it, you could say that tonight, Monday, Thursday, is the end of Act 2. Act 3 begins tomorrow, on Good Friday. Or you could say it another way. All of history converges in Christ, and everything changes in the light of his coming. So tonight, Monday, Thursday, includes three major actions which we commemorate. Jesus washing his disciples' feet, the Lord's table, where Jesus redefines the Passover meal, and Jesus and his disciples praying in the garden where he is arrested. And here's the thing. Every action of God has significance. Stuck between Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday 
and the Lord's table, the foot washing, seems almost incidental. And yet, it is a vitally important part of the story, just the same. Because Jesus uses it to teach us, once again, what it is to live in the kingdom. Now, many of you probably know that in the first century, they didn't have Air Jordans or Crocs or Uggs. They wore sandals. So it was very common in the first century, traveling those dusty roads on foot, to have very dirty and dusty feet. It was also common to have to wash your feet upon entering a home, and common also for the servants or the slaves of the home to wash the feet of those who are visiting. Those who washed the feet of others were the lowest class, the ones with no importance, no rights, no voice. Foot washing was one of those acts that lessers did for graders. It was something servants did for masters. It was a get-your-hands-dirty act that required stooping and rubbing and mucky water and smelly, calloused feet. Now, for us today, foot washing also has the connotation of being a little icky, maybe a little awkward. And this is why we pay people a lot of money to do pedicures these days. Now, I'm going to tell on my wife, Debbie, for just a moment. She's sitting in the back, so you can collaborate this with her later. One of Debbie's secret indulgent luxuries is to have her feet massaged. So occasionally, she'll ask me to massage her feet. She'll sit next to me on the couch. She'll plop her feet on my lap and hand me the lotion and a towel and then click on her favorite TV show, usually something girly like Call the Midwife or Snapped. And being a Christ follower who is learning to be mutually submissive, I will, of course, oblige her. But if someone else were to ask me to massage their feet, anyone, I will immediately call the police and file a restraining order. What I'm getting at here is that this foot washing by Jesus was an incredible, amazing, unfathomable act. And yet Jesus does it willingly and lovingly and with the kingdom in plain sight. And then he says this to his disciples, his friends. Do you understand what I have done for you? To address me as teacher and ma- you address me as teacher and master, and rightly so. That is what I am. So if I, the master and teacher, washed your feet, you must now wash each other's feet. I've laid down a pattern for you. What I've done, you do. I'm only pointing out the obvious. A servant is not ranked above his master. An employee doesn't give orders to the employer. If you understand what I'm telling you, act like it and live a blessed life. Jesus adds this seemingly insignificant act to the grand story for a reason. He is reminding us, once again, that the spiritual economy of his kingdom is not the same as the world's spiritual economy. Jesus taught an upside-down worldview. The first shall be last and the last first. The meek will inherit the earth. To find your life, you must lose it. And if you want to be great, you have to be a servant. The kingdom of God runs on a completely different set of values and metrics than the ones we use here on earth. And the truth is that the kingdom economy is actually the right-side-up view. The earthly values that we seem to hold on to so tightly, like status and money and power and fame, are really the spiritual economy that's upside down. 
So what is it to wash someone's feet? It is to be a servant. Not just to serve begrudgingly or out of duty, but to have the heart of a servant. To foster a heart that increasingly puts others before yourself. That cares for and gives to others. That is other-centric in nature. To be a servant is to see dishes in the sink and be the kind of person who naturally and without agenda just goes and does them. Washing feet is to have humility, not just to act humbly, but to have a heart that increasingly is being formed into one that is humble and unpretentious and submissive. Now, the word humility is a confusing word, so I want to give you a working definition of humility. Humility is truly knowing who you are before God. It's not false humility, false humility, the feigned act of modesty. Nor is it self-deprecation, to be critical of oneself to the point of disparagement. Humility is having a proper and personal understanding of who God is. Almighty and everlasting and perfect by nature. And then understanding who you are in light of that awareness. Paul eloquently described this in his counsel to the Philippians, which Mike stole from me, so I'm not going to read it again. But, uh, man, this is a tough crowd tonight. You guys, come on, wake up. According to the definition in Philippians, humility is a death of sorts. It is a dying to ourselves, our own interests, our own ways, our own false identity, our own need to control. And then it is surrendering that to God to rightfully allow him to give our lives direction, and purpose and worth. Humility is the truth of who you are in light of who God is. And this is the best part. In God's eyes, we are not who we pretend to be. We are infinitely more than that. To know who we truly are before God is the easy yoke and the light burden which Jesus invites us to. Think about that. Truly knowing God and knowing our place before him and with him knowing who we are in relation to the holy, holy, holy God, knowing that we are blessed dust. I tell you, if we truly understood this and just internalized it in our bones and then we lived it out, this would be a very, very different world. Now, I'd like to be a bit transparent here and speak as a worship and arts pastor, watching the world go by, especially during this last year where it seemed like every other week we're changing one thing or another due to the ever-changing COVID protocols. And I want to thank all of you for giving me the privilege of leading you all each Sunday morning and for hanging in there with us from online-only services to parking lot services to limited indoor services to masks on and masks off and courtyard services and a dozen iterations in between. We've been through a lot, and you've gone there with us. So I'm very grateful to all of you. Now, in the midst of all of this, however, I have seen and read and heard of Christians and Christian churches who are demanding their rights in the most unchristian way. We live in an increasingly combative, antagonistic, argumentative culture, and many Christians feel like in order to fight for their rights, they need to be equally combative and antagonistic, and argumentative. 
Well, frankly, I am put off by such displays. Oftentimes, I'm just embarrassed by them. Christians fighting for their rights in the most unchristian of ways. And there's a part of me that thinks that if we could just put some of that energy into fighting more for the needs of others, of the oppressed and the broken, the orphans and the widows, the lonely and the discouraged, you know, the people that Jesus loved, we wouldn't have to shout so much to be heard. Because the world needs people who are willing to stand in the gap and love those people. I wish we could spend less energy fighting for our own rights and use that energy to love those who have no rights. And I think that if we were seen by the world as the gospel people that God intended us to be, the world would actually take note. We would actually have credibility to say when something is right or wrong. Now, don't get me wrong. I am grateful to God that our country allows us the freedoms to gather and worship freely. But it seems to me that the more we Christians fight for our own rights, the more we make the gospel seem irrelevant to the world. Because we act as one who demands to be served instead of one who serves. You see, when we serve, we exercise the power of God's love. When we demand to be served, we trivialize that power in favor of the power of position and politics. Jesus showed this to us over and over and over again during this Holy Week. He didn't fight for his own rights. He gave them up for us and in the will of his Heavenly Father. He willingly washed his disciples' feet. He willingly gave himself up to the Roman soldiers. He willingly and quietly submitted to Herod and to Pilate. He willingly took up the cross. He willingly gave his life for us. And then he said this, What I've done, you do. Imagine what the world would be like if people thought, Oh, you're a Christian? Oh, you're one of those foot-washing people. Imagine that. You're a Christian, huh? Yeah, those, those are the ones that go out and they serve others. They're the ones that give themselves for the sake of others. They're the ones who really know how to love others. You're one of those foot-washers. Now, wouldn't that be one of the highest compliments anyone could give us? Someone calling you a foot-washer? So that's where we're going to land today in this short devotional. How do we do what Jesus did? Obviously, we can't go around washing people's feet. That would be bizarre. But I think that there are things that we can do that would be the 21st century equivalent of foot washing. So what does foot washing mean to you? Or more specifically, what is your personalized and contextualized version of foot washing? What kingdom action or actions can you incorporate into your life that demonstrate servanthood and humility and other centricity and is also practical and earthy and maybe even a little mundane? Well, let's come up with some practical answers. How many of you are married or live with roommates? Okay, almost everybody here. If you're married or if you have a roommate, how do you wash your spouse's or your roommate's feet? Well, maybe you can wash the dishes without being asked. Maybe you can clean the kitty litter or pick up the dog poop. Maybe you can cook a meal as a surprise. 
Maybe you can clean the bathroom, including the toilet. Some men are going like this right now. I can just see you guys doing this. Some of you can take out the garbage. Here's another one. How can you practically wash your neighbor's feet? You can mow their lawn. You can bring over a meal or dessert. You can take out your neighbor's garbage on Wednesdays. You can host a street barbecue for your neighbors. You can offer to babysit or house sit or dog sit. If you work outside of the home, how can you wash the feet of your coworkers or your bosses or your employees? You can make the next pot of coffee. Or you can clean the break room. You can ask them for your opinion, their opinion and really listen. You can bring in donuts for no reason. Or you can just sit down with them and genuinely, genuinely ask them how they are doing. If you are a young person living at home, how can you wash the feet of your parents? Here's a good one. Suddenly the parents are all listening. You can wash your parents' car. You can clean the bathroom. You can do your laundry. You can offer to cook dinner. You can be kind to your siblings. You can offer to do the grocery shopping. Young people, uh, I challenge you to just do some of these things around the house without being asked. And then watch your parents completely wig out trying to figure out what you're, do- what you're up to. Perhaps you can do something larger, something for the least of these. And there are a lot of places locally you can volunteer and we're a part of, such as the Twin Lakes Food Bank, Powerhouse Ministries, Heart of Folsom, um, Lowe's and Fishes. You can buy a meal for the next homeless person you see or offer them your coat or sweater. I bet if you thought about it, you can come up with a dozen ways to wash the feet of those less fortunate than you. Now, at the risk of being self-serving, I'm going to share a few ways you can wash the feet through this church. You can join the green team and mow lawns one or two Saturdays a month. You can come early on a Sunday morning and help set up chairs for the 11 a.m. service out in the courtyard. Or you can help take them down after the service. You can help Colleen by sanitizing toys in the children's classrooms during the week. You can write cards to people in our, our congregation who need some human touch but, in, but cannot have it right now because they're sheltering in place. You can join our faithful tech team upstairs in the tech booth where you can run multimedia or lighting or sound or our new robotic cameras. Finally, just let us know if you want to serve. Lorraine just mentioned to me yesterday that there's a senior in our congregation who needs some weeds pulled in their yard and they just can't do it. Can you help them? These are all behind-the-scenes opportunities at Oak Hills Church where you can serve humbly and anonymously before the Lord God. As I said, most of these things are small and practical and perhaps even mundane. That is the way of foot washing. Mother Teresa once said, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. Let me close with a quick story. Some of you know that Debbie and I just recently moved as as somewhat new empty nesters, we went ahead and decided to downsize from a four-bedroom, three-bath home to a cozy two-bedroom, two-bath home. So in the process of moving all of last week, we had a number of friends who were willing to wash our feet during the move in the form of helping us pack our belongings and building shelves and cleaning toilets and showers and planting flowers and moving furniture. Guys like Jeremiah, Ed, Jason, Ted, 
Dan, Donna, Christine, and Kirsten. I don't know what we would have done without each of you. In the midst of a very stressful time, you served us and loved us through your actions. And this is the way of the kingdom. This is the way of Jesus. To not only be a recipient of the grace and mercy of God, but to allow his grace and his mercy to flow through us to others. So I'd like to ask Jordan and Aaron to come on back. And as I wrap up now, I want to give you a moment in the quietness of your heart to reflect once again on the actions of Jesus, washing the feet of his disciples, washing the feet of his friends. I'd like to invite you to close your eyes for just a moment and imagine with me. Jesus gently pulling off the sandals and pouring the water and dabbing the towel and handling the feet of the twelve one by one. James, Thomas, Peter, Judas. What great love and mercy flowed through him. It was both a mundane act and an extraordinary act of grace. Now imagine this. God has placed people around you, family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, students, and all of society. And they need to know that someone is willing to wash their feet. Perhaps God may be calling someone to your mind right now. So be attentive to him. God has called all of us to extend grace and mercy to others. God has called us all to be foot-washing people. So as you sit there, as we sit here at the close of the second act, and before we enter the third, give yourself a moment to reflect and allow the Spirit of God to speak to you now.